there are many aspects of construction management that fit very kind of squarely in the uh, knowledge base and capacities of an architect. There's It's a lot of project management. It's dealing with drawings and understanding drawings. In our case, we are the architect and we are the contractor and we are building. So we're holding the contracts. We're building the building. We're opening the job site. And this, what Stacy was talking about a minute ago is kind of the secret sauce, which is it's the integration of that team. It's the same people. So the people who were playing with foam block models and early concept design very often are the same ones in the job trailer for the two years during construction. There's that knowledge on what really matters and what are the founding design principles while you're slogging through construction, as everyone knows it. And the flip of that is that while we're sitting at our desk designing, we have that understanding and knowledge of techniques, costs, logistics, and those things can and should play a role in the design of a building. Welcome to Best Practice, a show where we interview leaders in the building industry to unpack the tools, strategies, and tactics they use to run great organizations. Today, we're excited to be joined by Tom Gluck and Stacey Wong for a fireside chat on architects who build. Thomas Gluck and Stacey Wong are principals at Gluck Plus. Gluck Plus is recognized for architect-led design build, single source responsibility for archi with architects leading the building process. For over 40 years, the practice has committed to pushing the boundaries of design with real-world expertise to craft bold and conceptually unique architecture. Most work is constructed by the firm, both Thomas and Stacey bring expertise in leading strategic planning, as well as stewarding the design and construction for a diverse portfolio spanning typologies and scales. With that, thank you very much for joining me, Tom and Stacey. And as always, Chris, thank you. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. So I'd like to start off with just kind of the basics. What makes Gluck Plus unique? I, mean, I talked a little bit about being architect-led, design-build. What does that mean operationally? How are you different from a traditional office? And how does the, maybe the office structure reflect that? So I think most people who are listening in are um, very familiar with the typical process, design, bid, build, where architects are hired, design a building, put together documentation for it. Those drawings get bid out to either a construction manager, general contractor, and then that GCCM um, actually ends up building the building. And then a lot of people have heard the term design build, but design build, there are different ways that that can be configured. So I would say that Tom and I would often talk about the more common design build is actually build design, where it's actually contractor led. And that's usually either, I think in America, a lot of people are very familiar with the custom home builder, right? And it's the custom home builder who creates their own design, builds it, and then sells that product to people who are interested in these custom homes. In, I think, a larger scale buildings, when you get design build or build design, it's usually like a joint venture with an architect and a construction manager, but it's usually the construction manager who's holding the prime contract and the architect, in essence, is like a subconsultant in that contract. So for us, our design build is architect-led. And so that would mean that it still is, let's say, a joint venture, but it's really the architect that's leading the charge and the builders kind of, it's equal. They're in essence equal. But I think what makes us slightly more unique is that there are architect-led design build firms out there, but a lot of times they are 
separate companies and different people. So even though it may be one umbrella organization, you have people that from the art who are trained in architecture, have architecture degrees who work on the architecture side. And then you have a lot of people from the construction industry who are on the build side, but they just happen to be an umbrella organization. For us, um, we sometimes have been told we're maybe one of the most extreme versions of architect-led design build where we do have two separate companies and we can get into why that is later on in the podcast, but it's all the same people. And so on any given day, every single person in the office is switching their hats from being the architect, designing something to um, getting on the phone and acting in the capacity of a construction manager, talking to a subcontractor or dealing with contracts. And it's that ability for everybody in the office to be able to um, wear both of those hats that I think makes us quite unique. And I think just it goes even further than I think most people realize because I think it's relatively easy for a lot of architects to understand there are many aspects of construction management that fit very kind of squarely in the uh, knowledge base and capacities of an architect. There's, it's a lot of project management, it's dealing with drawings and understanding drawings. In our case, we are the architect and we are the contractor and we are building. So we're holding the contracts, we're building the building, we're opening the job site. And this, what Stacy was talking about a minute ago is kind of the secret sauce, which is it's the integration of that team. It's the same people. So the people who were playing with foam block models and early concept design very often are the same ones in the job trailer for the two years during construction. There's that knowledge on what really matters and what are the founding design principles while you're slogging through construction, as everyone knows it. And the flip of that is that while we're sitting at our desk designing, we have that understanding and knowledge of techniques, costs, logistics, and those things can and should play a role in the design of a building. I think too often in today's world is kind of seen as, well, there's pure design. That's what really matters. And then you have to figure out how to get it built. And dichotomy of that premise, I think we have completely undone in the office. And we is like at the heart of why we think this method makes for better designs and better built buildings, which is ultimately what more would a client, I mean, what more does a client want when they enter into a project? How did you get here as a practice? Like, what did it look like to try this out? And then what have you shed as experiments to make this work versus what things have held true and have actually worked <laughs> that you can continue to do it? I think it all starts with uh, the founder of the firm, Peter Gluck, uh, Papa Gluck, I guess, to Tom. And I mean, you know, Peter had a um, you know long history from grad school of going out with friends and actually physically building things. But when he actually when he started his firm, I think he was operating more in a traditional setting, being architect only, and having you know buildings built by GCs or contractors. It Peter ran the office like that for quite a while. And then um, there was a project in the early 90s. And it was an addition onto a Mies van der Rohe house. And, you know, what a sweet project, right? To be able to be able to add on to a modern master. And that was a really important project for Peter. You know, he designed this, you know, these beautiful sliding screens to create this um, inside outside space and to try to make it really work seamlessly with the original house. And when it actually started to go into construction, he started to realize that the tolerances had to be hit 
to make it work were so tight that the contractors out there just weren't, I don't know if it was recognizing how important those things were or because they hadn't really, they hadn't designed it and, you know, maybe the, they don't care as much about Mies van der Rohe. They just weren't hitting the tolerances that were necessary. And for Peter, it was such an important project. He said, you know what, I'm sending somebody out from the office every single day to just be there to answer questions to if something's not going right or they can already foresee a problem with a, a tolerance issue, they're going to be able to deal with it right away. And, you know, Peter did that. He sent somebody out there every single day and didn't get compensated for it because that's beyond what architects really do. And at the end of the project, super successful. And I think Peter looked back on that and he said, what's the magic there, right? I mean, you know, it takes supervision, it takes observation, it takes communication, all of those things architects are really, really good at. Why can't we try to build this thing? So I think, you know, in terms of the path, it always takes, um, I think, a couple of different things. One, really having a strategy and looking at the long view to say, what are the stepping stones that I need to take in order to get there, which in this case is design build. And then second, you kind of almost have to have that serendipitous timing to find the right person who wants to do it. And so right after that project, Peter ended up finding a client who, um, it was uh, an addition onto a farmhouse. And he was able to talk to that client and say, well, you know, I can design this, but I can also build it for you. And for, I think, a lot of people in, you know, the single family home realm, it's maybe not as hard of a sell. I think maybe because of that custom builder culture that is in America, it's not that foreign. But also I think for, you know, a lot of, single family residential clients, for them, this idea of, oh, I, I can deal with just one person. I can talk to them about the design and I can work with them through the build. And I don't have to worry about finding who's going to build this and what's it going to cost. You know, I can just work with the person that I fell in love with for the design and have them go all the way through. And that project was successful. And pretty much after that, it just builds on each other, right? So every single residential client, I think after that, when they find out that we can do that, it kind of seems like a no-brainer to them. And so, you know, we kind of did the single family design build for a long time, but it was this thing where, well, we'd love to be able to do it on an institutional project. And how do we get to a point where we're able to do that? And with institutional projects, it's a little bit more difficult, right? Because a lot of them have boards of directors. A lot of them feel like, oh, well, if the architect and the builder are the same person, isn't that a conflict of interest? And so this is where, um, you know, we did have that long view knowing that we wanted to do this, but it was that serendipitous timing of finding a client. It was uh, um, the East Harlem School, a school in New York City where the founder of the school, basically um, the way that he runs the school is that he, he feels like it's so important to look at like holistically the entire life of the kid and really be able to be there for what kids eat and how, what are they doing after school and what happens with them when they come in, um, early in the morning. And for us, when, when they realized that we did this design build, it made sense to them because what they were doing educationally, we were kind of doing in architecture and construction. And that was kind of the start of design build for the institutions. And it kind of built from there. It's also in terms of architects thinking about getting into it and doing themselves, if, how many architects do you work on their own project and hire a GC in a normal design bid build way? Very few, because every architect realizes that this is the one, the money really matters, and it's a much more cost-effective way 
that they have the wherewithal for their own project to hire, because we don't build, right? We don't build with our own hand. We don't swing hammers. We're construction managers. So we hire subcontractors. And so many architects are willing to do that for their own project, but then feel when they move from their own project to the professional practice, somehow that's a different world. That evolution from a single family house, maybe your own project first to a single family house, these are all steps that are all very achievable for most practices. And it did, as Stacey said, it, it built for us and it's grown so that, again, some of it, it always does take a little bit of timing and luck. One of the board members of the school was a, a contractor and developer, also identified and knew right away the potential value and, and was a bit of a maverick and kind of understood, not sort of just the generic one, and understood the problems with the normal process. And so it was one of the, the reasons why EHS why we were able to build that building. And then he, as soon as we were done with the project, because it was successful, came to us and we've done, we did a development project with him in Inwood in upper Manhattan, a stack, which is a modular project. So full three-dimensional modular construction. And we did that with him. And then that grew into, and in that case, we had a modular builder and we were the contractor and the architect. And then that developed into the kind of the evolution of what Architect Lab Design built for us has been is that we worked on a, a much bigger building, 180,000 square foot building, mixed use building in Philadelphia, which is a big union environment, not our local city, where we partnered, really partnered with um, his construction company. We were part owners in the project. So we have, we were on the development side with him. Um, we provided obviously the architecture and then also provided all the project management during construction. So we bought all the trades and worked through all the detailing and had a guy on site full time, but then used as a, as a partner, his construction company to do the, a lot of the logistics and relationships with the unions and, and all the other things that go into building a building. And that model is the one that's sort of infinitely scalable now because we can do projects at any scale that way. We have done on our own as architect-led design built, a couple of the biggest ones are about $70,000, $35 million buildings, condominium buildings here in New York City. So high-rise building in New York City for us is, a, is where we're the sole entity involved is a big project, but it works. The same benefits of what happens at the, whether it's your own apartment or your own house or a single family residence, they apply to all, all phases of it. And that's where the real benefit is to creating buildings that are uh, more finely able to identify the maximum amount of design you can get for whatever the budget of that project is. There's so many different threads here. One of which that kind of stands out to me is earlier on, Stacey, when you're describing that, that first residential project where it kind of click, it can kind of click for an owner of having just one person to talk to. So often I feel that there's little conversation about what does the client ultimately, like what's the best experience you can provide for a client and how do you work backwards from there? Like, even to the point of like uh, what you're saying, um, also Tom, about when you do your own project, what I wonder is if you work backwards from that experience, how can you redesign your entire practice? And like to the point of of having no client, even if it's you, like when you're doing your own, let's say renovation in your own home, like you don't want to talk to multiple people. You actually just want to have one person to talk to for most anything, any other kind of engagement that you have as a person. It's much better for you just to just have to one, one point of contact that's delivering everything. And yet architects sometimes don't think of it that way. They don't kind of work backwards from the state of mind of the person that they're trying to provide services to. So I love for Stacey, if you can kind of expand upon that of like, 
how important is it to sort of work backwards from what the wants in some sense? Let's see if I, I can answer it from two different directions. So from the client side, whether it's um, somebody's personal home where they're going to care about every single detail to a nonprofit organization who they've got this amazing vision for what they're trying to do in their communities and cities. It's not their day-to-day experience to interact or figure out how to get a building built. And so for a lot of people, clients, when they see the actual process that happens, right, when they get inspired by the design of the architect and then it hits construction and then they're like, why is everybody arguing? Why is everything, why is nothing costing what it's supposed to cost? Why is everything taking so long? Why does nobody agree on anything? This process makes no sense. And it doesn't make sense, right? And yet that's our day-to-day experience. And because we as architects are so used to it, it's not that we don't question it, but we just accept it as this is the way things are. Our whole firm is predicated on, no, that's not the way things have to be. It may be the way things are, but they don't have to be that way. And so for, you know, for clients, when they know, okay, somebody who took the time to listen to every single thing that I wanted for my home, for my school, for my building, and, you know, translated that into this design. And then that those are the people that are going to be on site fighting for it. You know, problems are going to happen on construction. I mean, we we have problems on, on our construction sites every single day. Architect-led design build doesn't erase those. But what it does is it gets to the solution quicker and it preserves the things that really matter to the client. And then I'm going to take it on the flip side. So on the flip side, you know, a lot of times when architects walk on construction sites, you have subcontractors and the CM and GC saying, oh no, you know, what are they going to identify this time? What are they going to tell me is wrong? Um, What are we going to have to rip out and fix? If there is a huge field problem that, um, you know, there's there's a whole bunch of things that need to be considered. How are we going to try to explain it to the architects so that they understand what's going on on the site and can see our point of view? So for a lot of the people that, a lot of the, the subcontractors that are out there, for them, they like the idea of having one person representing the architect and the builder, because for them, they're like, we have this problem. And if it's, you know, us who drew the drawing drawings, know why something was designed the way it was. We see the field condition. We're we're trying to understand how to fix it. For them, it's really easy because they don't have to just say, well, okay, I'm going to type up some RFI and then the give it to the GC. The GC, you know, disappears, you know, for two weeks while they try to sort it out with the architect or the engineer, then come back with what they think is the answer. And then, you know, that subcontractor said, well, that actually... I have more questions on that, or that's actually not what I was asking. And that, you know, something that could have been solved in a day ends up taking two, three, four weeks. And so from, you know, a a subcontractor side, for them, this whole idea of single source responsibility also is this amazing thing. And so you kind of have the client and all of the subcontractors all kind of agreeing on this idea that, you know, just having like one person or one entity that's really going to help solve the problem rather than, you know, add more problems to the problem. I think it's something that's really attractive. I mean, I think a lot of people say, well, as architects, when you go out there on the site, how do you don't the subcontractors resent you or do they not really respect you? And I would say maybe there's some skepticism at first, but I think the respect comes pretty quickly when they start to see how it makes life a lot easier for them on site. We have to remember that we're buying the trades, right? They work for us. We're holding, we've given the owner a guaranteed maximum price 
and we're contracting with them for that work. So the, the respect thing, I think that's one of the difficulties that this is this divide between architects and construction generally, but more importantly, subcontractors, because these buildings don't build themselves, right? It's people who build these buildings. And I think one of the great difficulties architects have in terms of both respect, but also in terms of knowledge base is that when they get out to the site or when they're working on the design in the office, they're not fully aware. We have consulting engineers. We really don't have the information we need. Very often, we don't have the information we need to really smartly figure out how to articulate our designs. And without being able to tap into this incredible knowledge base, which is all of the trades, which is a huge amount of information, consulting engineers know a fraction of what the contractors know. And you can't get all the way to 100% documentation and turn it over and hope that it's going to be right. I mean, we find this is this is the, one of these great values. And it's really rewarding, too, because we're able to, we're not like isolated in our little world. We have people in our office while we're designing, might be a plumber, might be an electrician. We say, well, here's what we're trying to do. What do you think? And they'll come up with solutions. And it's not that they're not right and maybe on the engineer's drawings, but there's they know exactly the most efficient way to do it. And that's why our, the job sites are kind of exciting and why contractors enjoy it is because they're rarely asked their opinion. They're given a contract. Mm -hmm. If they deviate from it, they know they get their ears boxed. And so there's all this information. They know it's not the best way to do it, but that's the way it's drawn. That's what you're paying me to do. That's the way I do it. But that's loss. That's, there's so much loss in the world. And you can turn that into a dollar amount. You can turn that into time. But if you really respect everyone in the process from, you know, initial concept all the way through to the completion, it ends up being a much, much richer, fuller, final product, which is ultimately what that single source responsibility can provide. And that's what owners, they don't want to design and they don't want a contractor. They want to build it. <laughs> and so however you can get there in the most efficient at its highest level, highest level of quality, of cost and of schedule, that's ultimately what, what everyone wants. How is the firm in the operations of the firm and how it compares to a traditional architecture firm and a traditional construction management operation? I'm curious where the differences are in that operations. So in like the operations of the five phases, how are you staffing it differently? How are you maybe putting in processes inside of those phases that would compare differently to how a traditional firm might sequence their milestones or sequence or even just staff their projects? It's changed the way we do. And, and it's changed the way we work entirely. It's changed the way we draw, the way we document. And actually, we're quite cognizant of it because I would say 75% of our work, we're the contractors for, but 25% of the work for one reason or another will just be architects on. And so we kind of have we live in both worlds. We very much prefer the one and see the benefits. And so when we operate in the traditional world, we're, we're often quite frustrated because we see what's being lost in the process. But it's it's affected even some of the most fundamental things. I mean, the classic phases that you're referring to, we have kind of reinvented and turned upside down. We'll do schematic design just like every architect does because you have to start with something. And then we'll actually pause. We do this thing we call construction document phase one after SD where we'll start to kind of flush out real technical drawings for the base building because we're now trying to get a handle on cost. 
before we get into elaboration of all the details, before we've invested all the energy and time, and not just us investing it, but our consultants, but also the owner, before you, you know, you start picking stones and picking materials, where is this going to be? Where price-wise? So we'll jump ahead and do those drawings and we'll send them out to tradespeople and we'll get pricing back. So we're not estimating based on historical information like, oh, or unit pricing, steel is so many dollars a ton and concrete dollars per cubic yard, but actually it's all about configuration. Now we don't do that for things that you can, uh, flooring, you can unitize. I mean, that's basically a commodity. So once you've created a shape and the complexity of, of a building and everyone is unique, you want to get a, a good sense of what that is. And then after that, then we will either adjust or we'll proceed into DD and there are a couple of benefits because now we've kind of narrowed our price target, but we've also got all that, it's what I was referring to before, all that information from going out to the trades that all back at our tasks while we're still in design. So we can circle back things back in and say, oh, well, you know, we could completely reinvent. This was an idea that didn't occur to us, came from a contractor, but it really would make a big difference here. So it's changed that and it's changed the way we've dimension, we, the way we draw, we have many, many, many more drawings. We draw technical drawings early. We understand that different drawings are needed at different times through construction. Um, I mean, one of the classic stories is we had a guy working on a project and was in the office, the design, did all the construction documents, dimensioned all the plans, and then went out to the job site to be the kind of lead builder on it. And within, I don't know, three or four months was calling up and saying, these drawings are terrible. Who did these drawings? It was him before he knew what a drawing really needed to be and why it needed to be the way it needs to be. You know, imagine going through that as an individual over the course of a year, but imagine, so that's now happening in a 40-person firm over 40 years. That feedback loop has changed so much of the way we draw and think because it's not, our deliverable isn't 100% CDs, our deliverable is the building. And that's kind of the fundamental shift. It's like so fascinating about hearing you describe that is it actually feels very similar to like agile development in software or just the idea that you build like if we were to build a new feature i don't know send an email out to somebody right you want to build the easiest version of that first end to end to like be able to understand is this going to work or is it is it going to work as intended or get feedback on that and sometimes you have different you could build it with code or you could build it with like different tools that kind of allow you to build prototypes, right? Easily. But it's all about how can you get feedback on the end, the outcome as quickly as possible and then layer on complexity and improve that over time. And I feel like that, the way you're describing this feels very similar to how software is built in a sense. And all that to say is that there, that I feel, you know, oftentimes there's this kind of priori application of what we've learned in school or like, because the phases have been, there are four or five phases and that's what the has been passed down for years. You can't change that. But everything that you're talking about is actually, if you work backwards from the outcome, you should change it. Like you should come to design the way you work based on what you're trying to accomplish. Not just because like it's, uh, you know, has to be waterfall or this kind of traditional model. There's no question there on that front. It's just really interesting to hear. We sometimes hear that about is um, the film industry. You know, a director directs, writes and directs a movie. The making of the movie is an, an integral part of that person's role, right? The person doesn't disappear 
once the script is written, right? It's writing and directing, which also is in the editing room and the mixing room. Of course, working with all the different people, you know, who provide all sorts of expertise in that world. But it is, it does occur in the kind of design build. We've heard about it in, in the software and in, in technology, and we've heard about it in film. There are other industries, I think, for very similar reasons that, that do approach it this way. How about when you hire in new team members that are not just um, earlier in their career, but more senior people on the team, because the firm operates differently, how do you hire for those people? I mean, I would say, you know, there aren't that many, I mean, it's growing, but there aren't that many architect-led design build firms out there. I would say 90, 95% of people that come to interview with us have zero experience with it. And that's, that's to be expected, right? I think for us, Design build, it can be messy. It's a lot of work. You have to cut, you know, be facile with jumping between being hyper detail oriented to be able to be, you know, zoom back and kind of see the big picture, see the whole. You have to be able to communicate well and problem solve well. So I think for us, we're not necessarily looking for people who are um, have experience with design build. We're kind of looking for that character. And we can see it when people come in and we can see like a, just even in it when they're working in a traditional firm and, and we talk to them about, okay, well, what was the big issue or the big problem on this project and how did you go about solving it? We can kind of tell when, when somebody's really trying to solve problems using a, a lot of different tools. And so I think we're kind of, we look for people that are willing to just kind of get messy, think slightly differently than we sense it. It's kind of hard to describe. But there's some, I think fundamentally, there's some portion of people who got into architecture, because who knows why we, how we, we, how we all got into it, but there's some part, if you do this, you have to be committed to it and you kind of have to love it or you're really going to not love it. And some portion of people got into it because they are interested in making things, whether it's furniture or crafting space or, and it's not a theoretical endeavor. And that's not a small sector of of architects. And so those are the people, regardless of what their experience has Mm -hmm. been in the industry. And we get a lot of people from firms all over who've been working for a lot of years who say, "I'm, I'm just frustrated because I never get to really see, you know, be involved with the making of a sausage. I'm just drawing pictures of it. And so those are the people who we that give us this sensibility is because they want to know how things, they're interested in how things go together. And then they come here and we, we have, you know, we're a small office, we're 40 people. We have a very large number of people who've been here a long time. Um, There's a lot of retention. And so there's an enormous amount of knowledge on every team. It's not just, we are top heavy, but I think it's important. My father is a senior partner. We have four principals. And then we have a number of people who've been through this process multiple times. So there's a lot of, for the junior people who are just coming out of school or someone who's coming from non-architect-led design build experience, it's a very rich place to learn a lot about this, this way of practicing. I will say also there's some things like, um, you know, a lot of building systems. Like when people come and they kind of geek out a little bit over the <laughs> building system, like, you know, they really care, even, even though, like it's a mechanical engineers thing, but they were really interested in like what this duct was doing and what structure is doing, how it's just like certain 
the things that are not traditionally in the architect's scope, if they cared about it and because they knew that how something was routed or how something was arranged in a room actually affected the architecture, it's the people that that are willing to geek out on the things that aren't the form or the pretty picture, like really caring about the whole. And that's, and, and for us, like loving the nuts and bolts, but also just um, caring about the mission statement, like you need to have all of that. How does it play out with, you mentioned earlier a little bit about being part of the development process or partnering up with developers. It's probably safe to assume that there's another layer to Gluck Plus that's on the operational side that works with those type of arrangements, right? There's another layer, whether it's the principles, that knowledge has to live somewhere. And I'm wondering, how do you find talent for that too? Like if that's part of the ambition to sort of scale the business in some sense, potentially in that way. I'm just curious, like there's one layer where it's like finding the sort of the needle in the haystack potentially, or the the people that are really geek out about the making of things versus like how to find the people that are also looking at the systems, which don't at, at a different scale, which don't always have to apply to like the making of things, right? One is like finding those people that are operationally minded that do it once and then rethink how to do it again the second time faster, better, smoother. Is that part of how you do? Do you find those people in the same roles and then carve different tracks for them in a sense, or, or it's just it's funny because we're very really, different positions that you're looking for. They're for very and, and of one of the things that's really demanding, but also really enriching. I mean, you know, one of the things that's exciting about you know we're not young architects anymore, Stacey. Oh. But as we, um, <laughs> you know, as we continue, you know, year after year, decade after decade, it's still interesting because what we really ask and support and demand of everyone here is that you're involved in everything. We're not specialists in the office. And so it may, that may not be like the most efficient way to run a firm. Like we would, if we really were trying to turn this into a production line, we could try to have specialists and have them each focus on one thing. But in terms of making a piece of architecture, in terms of making a really great building, having some experience with, we've always had one or maybe two development projects going on at the same, at any one time. So we've been doing development. Um, That plus and blood plus is more than architecture, more than architecture and construction. It's development. It's kind of, it stands for a lot. But having that overview and having that in the office, even if it's not necessary, it's not distributed into one or one or two people who focus on it. And that makes for better work because if you understand that a, a developer building it's fundamentally founded on, on it's a business venture and it, and it has to work that way. And it may be that it's a business, you know, it's an affordable housing project. We've done a 100% affordable housing projects, which obviously has a different market, a different goal, but nonetheless is, is a business uh, proposal for the developer has different goals than a, a high-end condo. And so being able to really understand it so that we can tailor our solutions and it isn't, there's less architecture in one than the other. There's certainly less budget in one than the other, but you don't, that really enables us to come up with solutions that are appropriate. You heard in the beginning, we're very, we have single family, about a third of our work is single family, a third of it is multifamily and a third is institutional. And we work in New York city, but also all over the country. So having this broad base of typologies and locations and asking these kinds of broad base of skill sets among people make it interesting and rewarding and fun. And But ultimately, I think we posit it makes for a better product, even if it doesn't kind of meet 
maybe the one criterion of analysis that it's the most efficient way because everyone isn't a specialist. It's the, the silos, siloization of all of these things we think is hurting not just architecture of the profession, but architecture as a product. Yeah, from a business model, it may not be the most efficient business model, right? Like everybody, somebody who they, their last project was a multifamily house. If you just kept, uh, I mean, multifamily residential, if you just kept them doing that because they understand the ADA and the code and all this other stuff, it would be incredibly efficient. But I think one, it would make that person maybe not as well-rounded of an architect. I think in order mm. to problem solve, the broader your experience is, the more experience you have with different building types. I think you can draw from something on another project that may seem like has nothing to do with the task at hand, but it may trigger something in you that creates a solution that nobody else would have thought of. Mm. But I think second, you know, because design build is so demanding, um, the people in the office have to really care about what they, what they're doing. They have to love what they're doing. They have to take ownership of it. And I think if people feel like they're just kind of like a cog in the wheel, just to do the thing that's the most efficient, that's going to, you know, be the best for the bottom line of the firm. I think it's not culturally who we are. We want Mm. people to, be well-rounded because they're going to be the ones who can see the detail and the big picture. And we think that shows in the work. We think it matters. Yeah, but it's I will say, resilient. you know, people in the office do hold us accountable too. They'll say, you know, you guys, uh, things could be a little bit more efficient <laughs> than that, you know. And so we want people to be vocal about when they see something that could be systematized, but maybe, you know, because we tend to err more on, we want to have slightly less structure so that people can be more open to experiment. But I, I think- And I think we've uh, come a long way. I think we've come that, a long way. That, that we've been doing design build for 25. 1992. Yeah, so. Yeah. Yeah, I guess so, yeah. And it's really, it's evolving. And so, you know, we have systems in place that allow things to work. So we have learned a lot of lessons and they do get rolled into the way we practice, but we we are resistant to have it become- too mechanical in its process because our passion and our primary goal is the design of great buildings. And we think building them and having that knowledge while we're designing is really a great way to get there. And we haven't talked about it, but in terms of from a business strategy, there's no money in architecture. And if everyone in an architect here knows that, there is money in construction. So, you know, it gives us a little latitude. We can feed our design habit with uh, or our design addiction a little bit with income that's created from construction. I mean, we'll just touch upon this on people may or may not. Well, they know this in architecture, right? So in architecture, your fee, you're basically given a fixed fee and everything has to come from that fixed fee. Salary for all the people working on it, um, rent for your office, um, your professional liability insurance, your general liability insurance, all your overhead, all your staff, every single thing has to come from that fee as well as your profit. In construction, staff covered in general conditions. Insurance, it's paid for as a line item. Every single, you know, your your job trailer, your computer, your, you know, your electricity, your phone, every single thing is covered under general conditions. And the profit is actually a specific line item. It's the construction management fee. It's purely profit. It's that construction management fee. So how can it be that architects, their fee has to cover everything under the sun 
And in construction, everything's neatly itemized. And, you know, that line item for that construction management fee, that's your target profit. At the end of the project, if you've done your job well, that's it. Everything else is paid for. And that's something that doesn't get talked about enough. So yeah, it uh, our, our construction management definitely feeds our architecture addiction. So and we're addicted. We're addicted. <laughs> We've got office. plenty. Yeah. We have plenty of questions here from the audience. How do you structure training employees for both worlds, both architecture and for construction? We've talked a little bit about this. It happens in the project team. It's not a linear thing where you just go through design and then you start construction. We're constantly doing this back and forth. And there's always people on the team who've been through the whole process. So that's something that people who don't have this experience are able to get without having. And then they're, they're you know, the first time an architect is on the job site in the trailer, along with someone experienced enough to run the job, there's a big learning curve. But uh, generally people, we've seen generally people are excited, to, thrilled to have that opportunity instead of the normal CA visits the job site once a week, have the contractor roll their eyes when they see you come. What are some of the downsides to what you do? Are there any like horror stories that you would like to share? <laughs> Examples where traditional... Tons of horror stories. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot of work, right? And so I think we everybody knows problems are going to happen on the construction site. And it's far easier to say, well, it was somebody else's fault that this happened. So we're going to see what solution they come up with versus saying, this is a problem we got to deal with. And this one's a hard one. What are we going to do? You know, you have that initial panic moment and you're like, okay, well, how are we really going to fix this? And, you know, it's a lot more work to actually be a problem solver than to be a finger pointer, right? And it's a lot of responsibility, right? If it's you're a building a $35 million building and it's $35 million of someone else's money, it's a lot of responsibility to design a $35 million building. But when you're actually on the hook for also literally spending that $35 million, that can keep you up at night. But that being said... In the traditional model, when something happens, everybody is already trying to figure out, okay, well, well, yeah, we know we have to problem solve, but we also have to figure out how to protect ourselves and make sure that we don't get blamed for this. I think in the, you know, in a design build model, when you just like that, you just have to set that aside and you're like, okay, I have all the tools in front of me to figure out how to solve this. I know what matters to the client and why something was designed in a certain way. As architect, I can figure out how to manipulate or modify the the detail to make it work. But I also can talk to all of the subcontractors who this is what they do every day and say, okay, well, what are the different ways that we can, that we can actually address this? And because they know that they're not necessarily going to be blamed for it, but they actually genuinely are being asked, what are their different opinions? You can kind of work together and the solutions that you're going to find are going to be far better than anything that you would have been able to come up with if everybody had kind of been on on opposite sides of the table. I think that's really an important point because, you know, if there's something that the single point of responsibility is how is what the owner sees. And so, but it, it's, we're not, it's Stacy and I aren't solving all these problems ourselves, right? We, we have just like as architects, we have all our whole cadre of, of consulting engineers but when we're building the building, we have an even bigger group of subcontractors, everyone with their own experience and, and you know, together far, far, many, 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 many more, more years of experience than we have in their specific trade. So if we don't spend the energy and time protecting ourselves because 
we're responsible no matter which way it falls generally or we have found we can we can always get to whatever the solution is and there always is a solution much much quicker than all the posturing and positioning that that look we have to do too in the normal design bid build world so in a funny way like when you hear the word collaboration everybody talks about collaboration from a design standpoint oh we collaborated with these other designers and whatever but when it comes to the construction site how often is collaboration actually used? Usually it's, it's coordination. <laughs> My stuff is going to coordinate with your stuff and your stuff, which is very different connotation than collaboration. So I would say like, you know, in a design build setting, you're going to that you're getting as close to collaboration as you can possibly get when you're in that kind of setting with the subcontractors. So would you say that the magnitude of those issues are just maybe different in general because of the process that you have to get to that point in other words like you already did the schematic design but you've also included this other phase of getting all the way to the end so it's almost like it feels that your iterations limit the risk at the end of the day in some sense where the magnitude of those problems are probably smaller than they might be in a traditional i think that's right and i I can tell you that one of the questions i'm I'm sure it's i don't see the chat and all that but i'm sure it's in there somewhere which is how do you deal with liability because it always comes up i'll just say that that that's exactly right and when we when we started talking to our professional liability insurance company about this to make sure that we weren't going to be taking on more risk than than we had to or should it turned out they were thrilled that we as architects were building the building because most of the time what they see, strictly in the professional liability side, what they see is a lot of the suits that architects get drawn into is because it hadn't been built exactly right. Or there was there was some maybe some ambiguity in the detail and the choice that was made. But if we're the ones on site, like day to day, every day, where we know, so we care because we're professionals, we're not just tradespeople. And we're completely on the hook contractually for both liabilities, both the professional liability and the, the general liability. We're going to be damn sure that no one's going to cut a corner on a, a roofing detail because we know we go down with that boat. And so the insurance company looked at it as this is the best thing we could have because we'll have many fewer claims because you're. It's, this is like full-time CA. What better way to ensure that it gets built the way it's supposed to be built? Here's another question. You mentioned you might touch on this about having two companies. Would you consider making a single company? Just would like to hear more about like, why is it two companies? Why not a single company? So we do this because professional liability is a very different kind of little liability than the contractor's liability. And it's personal liability, right? It's whoever signs that drawing. There are a huge number of lawsuits and a, and a lot of money, both in insurance on the construction side. And that has to do with either Faulty construction um, in New York State it has primarily to do with with um, injured workers, and so we might carry you know we carry three million dollars professional liability, but on a single building that uh, we have twenty five million dollars of contractor insurance. So it's super super important for us to separate on paper only the two entities, so that each in each entity takes on the liability, but that it should because they're different kinds of liability and no more. So the contracting insurance takes care of our contractual liability, our, our contracting liability. It's a very different kind of, it, it's big. It's, those, are, those are big numbers. 
but it's a different it's a different bucket. It's also it's a company. I mean, this is contractors. I'm, I'm sure everyone here who's worked realizes, right? You have a contractor out of business one day, and then they open up the next day, and they're back at it. It's there are different rules apply for these different kinds of. But as a professional, whether you're a lawyer, a doctor, an architect, professional liability is is a very different thing. So it's important to keep those. So it's really on paper. It's important to keep them separate. But the key, and I think Stacy led with this in the very was the first question, the first thing she said. The key is that we don't function that way. So we will be tying in our, we may, my fill out my timesheet. I'm a contractor for one hour and then I'm an architect for the next two hours. And then I'm a contract for the, the, and then the rest of the day I'm an architect. I mean, that's, so we try to keep it very clean and that's strictly for that purpose. We're actually um, almost at time. And so I want to be cognizant of everyone's time here and kind of jump forward to the last question that we like to ask everybody here. If you've listened to the end of our podcast in the past, you might have heard this question. It's a favorite. Brings us away from talking about business to being human. That question is, what's the nicest thing anyone's ever done for you? My son worked for, worked on, he's uh, he's 18. He worked for a summer during COVID, actually. It was the only job he could, he could because the construction kept going. So he worked on our labor pool. And he worked with, we don't he got have his OSHA training. He got his OSHA training. It was very <laughs> exciting. Phil had his first W, W4, W, W2. And uh, he worked with, we have, we don't have a lot of workers on earth, but we have one worker who is kind of our labor foreman. And he worked with Khan, uh, Wazir Khan, it was his name, and for the whole summer. And he had, a, he had a blast. It was a great experience for a New York City kid to work on a construction site with 80 workers from you know all over the world. I mean, 30 site, 30 different countries represented on site. And he wrote his college, his college essay about it. So the gift is that kind of diverse experience that was really fundamental in this. Wow, you're getting right? emotional. <laughs> we love it. We love it. <laughs> it's not that we love to make people cry, it's just, it's really nice to like hear hear very uh, sincere and like authentic stories from people. So really appreciate that time. Yeah, I mean, that's awesome. That's a I mean. Flashback into when I was 18, I would have loved to do kind of have a job like that where I can meet so many different people. Said I was at a video store, which had its own kind of people there too. Yeah, Yeah, you made a a whole cross section of the town. Well, thank you to everyone for joining. Appreciate everyone for joining us and uh, see you next week. Hey, it's Sylvia from Monograph. Thank you so much for joining us here. At Monograph, we're building the number one practice operations platform for small to mid sized architecture firms. Monograph is designed for architects by architects. Over 450 practices are using Monograph today to run the business side of architecture. You can start a free trial or sign up for a demo today at monograph.com. Find out what a practice operations platform like Monograph can do for your firm. Get started at monograph.com. Talk to you soon.